0: For the first time today, I just want to say thank you for joining us. It's an honor to have you here, present with us, and uh, it's my hope that the Spirit of God would do a work in you today, and that you would leave here different than you walked through the door. That's the goal. Now, for those of you who call AC Squared, aka Cross and Anchor Church, your home. Gotcha, you, Siobhan then uh, you're aware, you're well aware that we have been working our way through the book of Jonah. And we closed out scene three, the middle of the book, the end of chapter two, a few weeks back. And I said we're going to take a two-part detour. It's a part of the series because everything that we're going to study is going to help us understand the book of Jonah better But this is a two-part detour. Last time we were together where I was preaching, we covered the topic of typology. Today, we're going to tackle the difference between absolute and conditional prophecy because there is a difference between the two. And so I'm just gonna pray that God would give me the strength and the wisdom that I'm gonna need to teach this body what it is that he has in store for us to learn this morning. So, Father, I just bow my head in reverence. And, Father, I acknowledge that apart from you, I can do nothing. But simultaneous, Lord, we know that with you all things are possible. So in my weakness, Father, show and display your strength in a magnificent way this morning, Lord. I pray that the work that has gone into preaching this sermon would not cause confusion, but that it would bring clarity to the character and to the nature of the almighty God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Father, bless us as we search the depths of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now look, this sermon is going to be a hard pill for some of you in the room to swallow. But I have set aside time at the end of the teaching for a question and answer time where you can challenge me on what it is that I'm presenting today because there is a difference of opinion on interpretation of the text in this room and we embrace the diversity here. And at the end of the Q&A, I'm going to do the so what moment. Why would we even preach or teach a sermon like this? So you're going to have to wait till the end of the Q&A to get the so what moment. Okay? As we navigate the text of Scripture, I want you to hold the story of Jonah in the back of your mind, specifically Jonah chapter 3. Can we do that? All right. Amen. Let's turn our attention to the text for this morning. We'll be reading from Jeremiah chapter 18. We'll be reading from verses 1 to 12. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 to 12. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me there. If you don't, the text will be on the screen. Beginning in verse 1, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house. And there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house. And there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel. As it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I... Not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord... Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say, that is in vain. We will follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Saints, Could it be true that not all prophecy is absolute? What if I told you that the text of Scripture offers examples in the plural of prophetic words that are conditional? Alan Marsh and Bill Demers argue that God sometimes, but not arbitrarily, relents in response to the decisions of his people. Let me read that again. The argument is that God sometimes but never arbitrarily relents in response to the decision of his people. This morning, we're going to put their claim to the test. We're going to ask the word of God to give us the answer. Hear me, we're asking the scriptures to speak, is this claim trustworthy and true? There's no better place to go, right? Test everything. So today, we're going to test it, and the standard is going to be the word of God, not my interpretation, not your interpretation, but what the word of God says. Can you guys read this first slide for me, please? Now, we should not be surprised at the instructions that the Lord gave to the prophet. Now, some of us may be asking, well, wait a second, slow down here. Couldn't God just have spoken to Jeremiah wherever he was at? I mean, you told us to think about Jonah. God just spoke to Jonah where he was at. Why couldn't God just speak to Jeremiah right where he was at? And I would just say, oh, slow down. Of course God could have chosen to speak to Jeremiah whenever and wherever he wanted. However, verse 2 is consistent with how God chose to interact with Jeremiah from the outset of his prophetic ministry. Look at the slide with me. Here we have Jeremiah chapter 1. We're looking at verse 11 through 14. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Verse 13. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Now, Most commentators are united on the reality that God uses what we may refer to as the mundane in life to bring clarity to his prophetic words. Do you notice how I wrapped Annette in the blanket today and said that was a prophetic symbol of how Christ covers her? Notice what God is doing with Jeremiah. See the almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Just as you, Jeremiah, can see the almond branch, so I too am watching over Israel to perform my word. The mundane, the normal in Jeremiah's life, is bringing clarity to the prophetic word of God. What we miss in the English translation is that almond branch or almond tree, depending on your English translation, that is very, very close in the Hebrew to the word watching. So there's a play on words in the Hebrew here that we miss that the original audience would have picked up like that. As Jeremiah looks at the almond tree, so God looks at Israel. The apple of his eye. Jeremiah said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Everybody knows pots are round, so if you're holding a handle at the top, no matter which way you turn the pot, it's not going to be facing north or south unless you take the boiling pot and dump the water out. Then you're dumping the water from north to south. Oh, then the Lord said to me, out of the north, Babylon will come and bring disaster, and it shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. Just as the boiling water ran from the north to the south, consuming everything in its way, so Babylon will come and destroy Judah. Do you see how God is bringing to life His prophetic word in the normal things that we see every day? The normal things that they saw every day. Okay. We need to understand that this is how God is choosing to interact with Jeremiah in the outset of his ministry, so we should not be surprised in chapter 18 when he says, go to the potter's house. Just as he used the almond branch, just as he used the boiling pot, now he's going to use the image of the potter who's hard at work at his wheel. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? I want all of us to listen to the words of Old Testament scholar J. Daniel Hayes who writes, one of the ironies, okay, one of the theological tensions in the book of Jeremiah is that Yahweh continually intertwines the message of inevitable judgment with multiple calls to repentance in order to avert the inevitable judgment? What? What? And the answer is yes. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 1 through 12, Yahweh takes Jeremiah to the potter's house to watch the potter at his wheel. When one of the pots becomes marred, the potter simply reforms it into another vessel. As we're about to see, Yahweh will declare that he is like the potter. He alone has the power to reshape the nations. There's just one caveat, everybody. (laughs) Yahweh will base his judgment on the response of the people and whether or not they choose to repent of their sin. Can you guys read these next three slides out loud for me, please? Okay, let's just push pause and let's notice the order of events thus far. Verse 1, Jeremiah hears. Verse 3, he obeys. Verse 4, he watches. And only after all of this unfolds in the life of the prophet does the symbolism of the potter come into focus. Now, many commentators believe that the main point of chapter 18, verse 5 and 6, is to show God's absolute sovereignty over both nations and people in that God's actions are never dependent upon human actions. There's just one major problem with that for those of you who are saying amen. (laughs) If you're going to come to that conclusion, you have to divorce verse 5 and 6 from 7 through 10. You actually have to read verse 5 and 6 in isolation from verse 7 through 10. To go beyond that, if the potter and the clay illustration is solely about God's unilateral control, then wouldn't that make God responsible for Judah's failures? I mean, come on now, take it to its logical conclusion. Pull on the thread. And find out where it takes you. God is either in control of all things or he has authority over all things. And I'm going ar- to argue for the former. God is either in control or he has authority over all things. And I'm arguing for the authority. In fact, I agree with Alan Marsh and Bill Demers who write that God can be Flexible. He's sovereign. Amen. Therefore, he can choose to revise his plans and/or change direction. However, we must understand that these changes are never arbitrary. They're never arbitrary. As a matter of a fact, it's Yahweh himself who has set the terms which allow him to be flexible, i.e. verses seven through 10. When you read Jeremiah seven through 18, seven through 10, it's my opinion that these verses clearly articulate what it actually looks like for God to exercise ultimate authority. He doesn't have to ca- yeah, amen. He doesn't have to cause the problem to fix it. He is always the solution. put the next slide up. If at any time I declare, who do you think's talking here? If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I, Yahweh, declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build or plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. God sets the terms because God is sovereign. And if he decides that he's going to work in time with his creation, as opposed to always existing above or outside of time, then that's his prerogative. You don't think he can do that? You ought to take a look at the life of Christ. That's where it becomes most clear that he has the power and the authority to do such a thing. Saints, I already asked the question, have we forgotten who's speaking here? Put the next slide up. The word that came to Jeremiah came from who? The word of who came to Jeremiah? And in verse 11, we're going to get there. Thus says the Lord. For all you King James lovers, thus saith the Lord. Dr. Michael Brown notes that Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7 through 10, is the only place in the entire Bible where the prophetic principle of divine conditionality is clearly detailed. In his commentary on Jeremiah, he writes that this passage in Jeremiah is unique because it provides the important insight that even when the Lord gives a direct threat of judgment or a direct promise of blessing without mentioning any conditions, the conditions are always there. Potentially Altering the outcome. As modern students of the text, it's our responsibility to know and understand that the conditional element is implicit in every prophetic word unless God explicitly states otherwise. This right here is what it looks like for God to sit in the heavens and do as He pleases. That's what it looks like. God sets the terms. He sits in the heavens. He does as he pleases, and he laughs. If you've got a problem with this reality, take it up with the author of the inspired text, not with your pastor. Or you can take it up with me after you have it out with God. J.A. Thompson observes that Yahweh is able to modify his actions towards humanity. He states that it's impossible to read this portion of the text apart from the stipulations and sanctions of Mosaic legislation. For it's right there in the Mosaic legislation that we find the terms and conditions for both blessing and cursing, both life and death. The text of Torah is clear. The people of God would enjoy Yahweh's blessing only on the basis of obedience and loyalty to the covenant. And it's the same way in the new covenant. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I what? Command. Why do you say that you love me if you won't obey me? And John exegetes this for us. If you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. Don't be trying to throw at somebody, well, we're in the new and better covenant now, yo. Ask that person to, divide, to define the terms of the covenant for you. That's the first place you start with that individual. Define the terms of the covenant. Because if they try to express a view that says there's no way for you to violate the terms of the covenant, it's not a covenant. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Can we see it? Do you guys see it? It's right there. Verse 11 gives us a front row seat to the irony that was mentioned earlier. I mentioned it specifically at the outset of our study this morning for this reason. Old Testament scholar J. Daniel Hayes wrote that throughout the book of Jeremiah, Yahweh continually intertwines the message of inevitable judgment with calls to what? Repentance. It would therefore be irrational to embrace the idea that at this point in time for Judah, repentance was beyond achievable. God is calling them to that very thing. Our author, the author, (laughs) tells us that it doesn't have to end like this for Jeremiah's hearers. For the Lord explicitly tells them that it's not too late to repent. Repent. And he does this by urging them to turn away from their wicked ways. The Hebrew term is shub. When we choose to read verse 11 in its proper context, we can see that Yahweh's heart is to relent despite the fact that he has been devising a plan against them. Yes. Yes. And you're going to see nashan in the Hebrew when it talks about God relenting. And you cannot read the Bible like a dictionary and try to isolate these terms and argue from a single term. You need to see both terms and hold them in tension because the text uses them in connection to one another. I've got an excellent article if you guys want it when I'm done. Can you guys read this next slide, please? This verse fascinates me. It's very fascinating. It's also highly confrontational. Edward Daglish warns us that we ought not to read this as the people's self-assessment. Trust me, the people aren't in Israel right now looking at the prophet going, yeah, we're just totally wicked and evil. (laughs) They're not doing that. They actually believe that what they're doing is correct. This is the prophet's moral judgment levied against the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We need to understand that Jeremiah's audience, the ones who would have actually read this and not heard his prophetic oracles, they would have been reading this in captivity in Babylon. Can you imagine sitting in Babylon meditating on the reality that authentic repentance could have actually turned the heart of God Bringing salvation to the people of God in the land of God where they could maintain interacting with the presence of God? Can you imagine what it must have felt like coming to recognize how short-sighted the people of Judah had been in underestimating the grace and the mercy of God? As modern students of the text, here's my warning. Don't fall into the same trap that Israel did. Though God may have declared a coming judgment, it's never too late for you to repent. Now, that we've exegeted those 12 verses, we're going to turn the corner from conceptualization we're going to move to practical application, which means we're going to move beyond theorizing that this may be an option or theorizing that this is just Matt's interpretation, and we're going to watch this actually unfold in the text of Scripture. And we have to do this. We have to do this now because I know that some of you are struggling right now with the idea that God can somehow modify his behavior. You're struggling with the idea that God can definitively change his mind or have a change of plans. Even after what we just read, you're still struggling with it. So allow me the opportunity to remind us that at any time that we see this happening in the text of Scripture, it's never arbitrary. God is not capricious. He set the terms, remember? Who's the clay to argue with the potter? when he sets the terms God is not arbitrary now I'm going to need a volunteer James why don't you come on up here yeah Spicer (laughs) you got your Bible you're going to need it everybody else turn to 2nd Kings chapter 20 verse 1 through 6 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1 through 6. He's going to be reading out of the red mic, TJ. So can we get that turned on? Oh, I don't know if this is going to hold, bro. You're going to to have to read into this microphone right here. Now, before he reads 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1 through 6, let me set the stage or give you guys the context. Now, Hezekiah is king. And the Neo-Assyrian army has just destroyed the northern kingdom. Remember where Jonah's from. We looked at it on the map. The Neo-Assyrian army has just destroyed the northern kingdom. They're camped outside of the southern kingdom's walls. They're ready to begin siege warfare so that they might also conquer the southern kingdom. And this happens. See, Hold on.
1: Give me a second. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven... No, in no, 2
0: Kings chapter 20, verse 1 through 6. Oh, Yeah. Twenty one through 6? Yeah. Through 6. yeah. 2 Kings chapter 20.
1: 20. Start with that. You're good, you're good, you're good. Here the first time. You're good. About yeah. the time Hezekiah was deathly ill, and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to visit him, he gave the king this message. This is what the Lord says. Set your affairs in order, for you are going to die. You will not recover from this illness. When Hezekiah heard this, he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I have always been faithful to you and have sinned your single-mindedly, always doing what pleases you. Then he broke down and wept bitterly. But before Isaiah had left the middle courtyard, this message came to him from the Lord. Go back to Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Tell him. This is what the Lord, the God of your ancestor David says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you and three days from now, you will get out of bed and go to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life. I will rescue you in this city down, hold on, in, in this city from the king of Assyria. I will defend the city for my own honor for the sake of my servant David. As someone pointed to in second to in Second Chronicles, And God gives a message to the people saying that if they were to repent as well, and, and, and and this is actually confirmation of what the Lord is speaking about to me this past week or so, is that if we repent, God will heal our land and potentially our health.
0: There you go. Thank you for reading that. All right. So here we go. James just read. That sounds super loud. Okay. James just read 2 Kings chapter 20 verse 1 through 6 as we follow along. Now I'm going to read to you Isaiah chapter 38 verse 1 through 5. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord. Just don't want to get it twisted here, everybody. This is the word of God. All right? Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord. Uh equally the word of God, equally authoritative, the God of David, your father. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. Notice, you shall not recover. Remember, he's sick. And then God adds 15 years to his life. And I would encourage you to go see the medical means that they use to help him recover in Second Kings, although ultimately God gets the glory. It's a word for you, Annette. Let's talk through a couple of different observations. First, the nature of Hezekiah's illness is not mentioned nor does it state that this is some sort of punishment for sin. Second, Hezekiah's prayer contains no explicit repentance. So in consideration of point number one, this may point to the reality that it's not connected to any specific sort of sin in the life of the king. However, despite these claims, the prophet is still required by God To deliver a strict prognosis of death. And yet, before Isaiah can get past the temple, the Lord hears and responds to the king's prayer. Old Testament scholar Trent Butler instructs his students to spotlight the reality that the prophet Isaiah would be required to contradict his earlier message. How do you think Isaiah felt? The prophet required to contradict his earlier message. What does this teach us, saints? It teaches us that God remained free to respond to the king's prayer even when it involved changing his previous proclamation. Read the word. John Oswald writes that in the scroll of Isaiah, one can see that God is always ready to be entreated. He's always ready. He's like the father on the wall awaiting the prodigal. Saints, do we understand that the prayers of the faithful can change the course of life's events? Read James chapter 5, verse 13 through 18 if you don't agree with me. A failure to pray is not an option in the life of the believer. It's a sign of spiritual apathy. If you sit there and you say, God is sovereign, and whatever happens, I'm okay with it, you're apathetic. It's a sort of rebellion, actually. It's an unwillingness to wrestle with God. Remember somebody in the Old Testament? I will not let go of you until you bust me. <laughs> is that what your prayer life looks like, saints? Or are you apathetic? God's in control. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and I will do nothing. It's pathetic. It's a contradiction of the whole counsel of God's word. King Hezekiah heard the word of God, and with a broken and contrite heart, he turned his face to the wall, and what did he do? He cried out to God. He wasn't going to take it laying down. This morning, I'm asking that we allow the text to have a greater voice than our traditions. Well, the Holy Spirit inspired the text, so it's not going to be a contradiction there, bro. My request is that you let the text of Scripture drive your walk and faith and practice, and you abandon human tradition if we're willing to do this, if we're willing to follow the truth wherever it may lead, then I believe that the spirit-filled believers of God's church may embrace the reality that God is free to revise his plans and or change his direction without contradicting his own character and nature. And we just saw him do it. Studying the life of Hezekiah has forever changed me. When I read how the king's actions affected the heart of God, I realize that his positive response to the word of God brought about the deliverance of the entire southern kingdom. Do you know that God and how he affects your life can have an effect on the lives of those around you? His positive response to the prophet and the words that the prophet spoke not only brought about an extension of life by 15 years, but it brought about the salvation of the southern kingdom. They would not fall to Neo-Assyria. This too would function as a sign to the people of God as they lived in captivity in Babylon. What would have been the future of Judah had they responded to the prophet Jeremiah as king Hezekiah had responded to the prophet Isaiah. And there's no need to appeal to, myr- to mystery, everybody. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7 through 10 tells us what would have happened. The people of Judah sitting in captivity reading the letter of Jeremiah and the scroll of Isaiah would have been confronted with the reality had we repented and turned to God, the outcome that we are experiencing would not be our reality. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, before I prepare to close, I want us to look at one final example. And I was telling Carl I had a really hard time picking these. What am I going to choose? There's so many. Which one do I pick? 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 27 through 35. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 27 through 35. Now here, let me set the context for you as I prepare to read this. Eli and his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are working as chief priests in the tabernacle. It's my opinion that Eli is as wicked as his sons. His sin is just different. And so this is where we'll pick it up. And there came a man from God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I intend I'm sorry, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? And the answer is yes. God revealed himself first to Moses, and then God revealed himself to both Aaron and Moses before they would go to see the Pharaoh. Picking it up in 28, did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? Yes, God chose Levi, to go up to my altar to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Now, some people like to argue that Eli wasn't as wicked as his sons, but Eli was a fat old man who fell backwards and died when he broke his neck. How do you think a man in the ancient Near East gets fat? I'll tell you. By abusing the food that is supposed to be set aside for Yahweh alone. They weren't supposed to eat the fat of the sacrifice. They were supposed to burn it. But Hophni and Phinehas were taking that and more than their fair share. And that's how Eli got fat. That's why he's just as wicked as his sons. Because he knows what's going on and he does nothing to correct it. Especially when he has the authority. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phineas. shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Some argue it's Zadok. Some argue it's David. All agree that it's perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Notice the language in verse 30. God has promised past tense. However, now the Lord declares present tense. Old Testament scholar David Sumera notes that God's eternal promise can be changed. So now we have to ask ourselves, what brought about this change? Well, Eli had condoned the sin of Hophni and Phinehas, which demonstrated that Eli loved his sons more than he loved God. Think about the words of the master. Think about what what Christ teaches in the Gospels. You gotta hate your mother and your father. Translation, you must love them less than you love me. In verse 29, we read that Eli honored his sons above the Lord. Based on the textual evidence, we may argue that God's decision was anything but arbitrary. In fact, it was calculated. Eli's flagrant disobedience would result in his family line being removed from the Aaronic priesthood. It's my opinion that in this portion of the narrative, we see the consistency of God when we hold this narrative in contrast to how God dealt with the future king of Israel, King Saul. The only difference is one was a priest and one was a king. Dr. Michael Brown reminds us that when we look at passages like Jeremiah, chapter 18, verse 1 through 12, when we look at passages like Isaiah, chapter 38, verse 1 through 5, and when we look at passages like 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verse 27 through 35, we need to be aware that some people will attempt to argue that God has either lied or that he lacks the power to carry out his threats or promises when the things that his prophets have spoken don't come to pass. However, the opposite is actually true. It's our responsibility to correct this way of thinking, saints. The God of the Bible operates entirely by the terms he has decreed, and he does this with the same discretionary power and authority that the potter has over the clay. Amen? And I'd like to close with a word of prayer and we'll begin the question and answer. Father, thank you for your word and its clarity. Thank you for the whole counsel of Scripture. Thank you that we can see that as a God who exists outside of time, you can choose to operate inside of time, reflecting the personal relationship that you're in pursuit of and how you actually made a way for that relationship to be reconciled in the life of your Son, Jesus Christ. As we read these words, Lord, we are reminded that you are a Father who is gracious and patient and willing that none should perish. You take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so, Father, we thank you for your benevolence, and we ask that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.